We sing a lot of songs here. We met, I guess, last week, two weeks ago, can't remember now, uh, to plan services for January, and that's what we found ourselves doing is looking at our song library, looking at songs that Tom had, had put together for the month of January and going, oh, we, we want to sing this one, and we want to sing this one. So maybe we can take out this one and put this one in, but I don't want to take that one out because there's many, and they're all, they're all very, very good. And on any given week, because of that, with a, a deep song library, we recognize that we're going to sing some songs that we'll all know and that we'll be familiar with, uh, and sometimes we're going to sing songs that we don't know or that we're getting to know and, and growing more familiar with. But there is one that I guarantee, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that were it to show up on an order of service and pop up on the screen or be in your little worship book, we would all know it. You wouldn't need the screen. You wouldn't need the worship book. You wouldn't need a hymnal for it. And that is, Jesus loves me. Now, I love you, so I'm not going to sing the song to you. But I imagine I don't have to because you already have it going, going in your head. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. And what's the next line? They are weak. Thank you. I didn't even plan. I didn't think that worked. There you go. Awesome. And that's true, though. That's true. We are weak, but he is strong. Now, as we come to 1 Samuel, we know that things have been quite turbulent in Israel since Saul's rejection of God's authority. As a result, the Lord rejected him from being king over Israel. But he has, anointed, uh, he has anointed David. He's had Samuel do that. David has been anointed as king. And we know that the Lord is with David. This is very, very evident. He delivered Goliath into his hand. He's given him success wherever it is that he's gone. And all the people love him. First, or maybe not first, but we see that in uh, Saul's daughter, Michael. She loves him. So Saul gives her to David as a wife. And maybe even more significantly, Saul's own son, Jonathan, the heir to the throne, as it, as it would seem, understood David to be the true heir of the throne. And he's covenanted himself to David. He is loyal to him. But all this has done is enraged Saul. Ever since the women uh, were singing the song about David striking down his ten thousands and Saul his measly thousands, Saul has been on the warpath. He's tried multiple times and multiple ways to kill David. And so for a few chapters, we've seen David fleeing from place to place for safety. First, he runs to Samuel, and Saul tries to take him there, and the Lord preserves his life. Two weeks ago, when we were last in 1 Samuel, we saw that David comes back to Gibeah. He comes to Jonathan to convince Jonathan, hey, your dad is trying to kill me. And through his plan with Jonathan, uncovers just how determined Saul was to doing so. And so David has to go. David has to run. And that's where we pick up this morning with David running for his life. And now, before I read the text, I, I want to say this. We already know how the story ends. David is going to survive, and he's going to become king. And so I want to say this. 
I think there's a temptation to just kind of breeze over the various details of the account, the, the different scenes, if you will, if I can say it that way, in the story of David becoming king, or the account, rather, of David becoming uh, king. And now, it's, that I think can be especially true when we come to parts of the account that are kind of strange. And I would uh, offer to you that the text that we have this morning, there are some parts in it that are just a little, that are just a little strange. And so, what I'm going to ask you to do is to put yourself in the place of someone who is reading this for the very first time. And I recognize the difficulty there, because it's probably not. But think for yourself, how might someone who is reading this, who is hearing this for the very first time, how would this hit them? What kind of questions would they ask? Or would you ask if you were reading this for the first time? And I'll suggest one. What gives? I thought this guy was supposed to be the king. David, a few chapters ago, looked strong. He killed Goliath for Pete's sake. And now he looks vulnerable. He looks weak. How is the kingdom ever going to be established under this guy? I think those are the questions that the author wants us to be asking. Because what this text shows us is that David will rule because God provides for, delivers, and leads his king. Let's read together 1 Samuel chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter 21, starting in verse 1. And it says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone, and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them, 
and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down, in his, beard, run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So I see three scenes for us in the text. And the first, it happens in Nob, where the Lord provides for David. So David's flight brings him to Nob, and his appearance there uh, startles Ahimelech, because David is alone. Ahimelech is the priest, and so it would seem that what has happened uh, is that the priesthood has moved the base of operation from Shiloh to Nob, and so that they are operating here now. This is where David runs, leaving Gebeah, encounters Ahimelech, and Ahimelech is weirded out by David's appearance because he's by himself. And so he asks him, and this is a reasonable question, I think, right? When we consider David's uh, credentials, hey, David, son-in-law of the king, commander of the king's soldiers, why are you by yourself? Sorry, I had a spider. That's first. I hate spiders, too, if you didn't know that. Anywho, so Ahimelech asked him this question, which seems like a very reasonable question, and in response, David cooks up a story. The king has sent me on a top-secret mission. Now, I have a designated place where I'm going to meet my men, but I can't tell you what I'm doing. Those are the king's orders. Now, it's obviously not true. And why David says this, I don't know. You know. Maybe David is trying to protect the priest, wants to give him plausible deniability. Maybe he doesn't know if he can trust Ahimelech. It might be worth noting that Ahimelech's brother Ahijah was the priest in chapter 14 who was with Saul in the pomegranate caves. So maybe he doesn't know if he can trust him. I don't know. Maybe there's another reason. And now, I know... We all want to ask the question here, well, is David right to do this? Is this okay? It kind of makes me feel a little, a little weird. David, David's lying like this. And so we want to know, is this okay? But here's the thing. The author obviously wasn't concerned with that. And we can say that and we know that because the text itself doesn't make a moral judgment on David. It does not condemn him for what he does. It does not commend him for what he does. 
We're just told what happened. So if we come to this, and we start asking the question immediately, well, is, is David sinning here? It's the wrong question. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The question we ought to be asking is, why is the author telling me this? What does the author want me to know by including this in his account of David's ascension to the throne? More importantly, what theological point is the author trying to make here? What is the author saying to us about God? And so I think the answer becomes plain enough. As it relates to David, the threat of of danger when the king is after you, it's around every corner. And so it seems very obvious that the author is highlighting the fact that David is desperate. And the text makes it very clear that, yes, indeed, danger is around around every corner for David. I want you to look again at at verse 7. We read that. You might have been like, well, that's kind of weird, the way that it's placed in there, where it says, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there, Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. It's just kind of tucked in there between, can I have bread and can I have a sword? Maybe would seem kind of out of place for us. But look again. There's a significant emphasis there on Doeg's credentials. First, he's called the servant of Saul, a certain man of the servants of Saul. And then his importance is highlighted beyond. He's just everyday uh, average Joe servant. He's the chief of Saul's herdsmen. So this isn't just some random guy. This is a guy who's on up in the totem pole in, uh, in Saul's regime. So David, on the run from Saul, has happened upon this somewhat uh, substantial servant of Saul. Even though he's left Gebeah, Saul's hand can reach him. His servants are nearby. Nob is not a safe place for David. He's in a tight spot. He's running for his life. He doesn't know who he can trust. He has no food. He has no weapons. He's desperate. He's vulnerable. And so he asks Ahimelech to give him whatever he has. But Ahimelech only has the holy bread, the bread of the presence. Now, you want to read more about this. It's in Leviticus 24, 5 to 9. But this bread was bread that the priest would place on a gold table that was situated in the holy place. Remember, you have the Holy of Holies, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of the Lord was uniquely present among his people. Separated out from there is the holy place, separated by the temple curtain or the veil. That's where this gold table was, and this is where the bread would be placed, and it would be placed there every Sabbath. Well, on the following Sabbath, the priests would come in, They would remove the old bread, they would replace it with fresh bread, and then the priests were allowed to eat the bread of the presence in a holy place. But that was a rite that had only been given to Aaron and to his sons, so to the the priestly line. But despite this regulation, Ahimelech gives the bread to David under one condition, 
that he and these men that he's going to meet have kept themselves from women. And so he's basically just asking David, hey David, are you guys ceremonially clean? And so that way it seems that bread that was supposed to be eaten in a holy place would at least be eaten by holy and consecrated vessels. To which David says, well, of course. We always are when we go out on an assignment. Certainly going to be on a top secret one like this. And so satisfied, Ahimelech, he gives him the bread. And so David is now given something that according to the law, he has no right to. And we know the means by which he's attained it. And so we may still be wanting to ask the question, is David in the wrong here? But again, look to the text. Let the text drive us to how we understand our understanding what is happening here. Is David condemned here or anywhere else for taking the bread? Is Ahimelech condemned by the Lord for what he's done here? No. In fact, Jesus makes this very point in a confrontation that he has with the Pharisees. Remember, they get upset with him because he and his disciples are going through a field on the Sabbath, and his disciples, who are hungry, are plucking heads of grain as they go and eating it. And so they come to Jesus, and they're like, why are you, why are you guys doing this? Why are you letting your disciples get away with this? Are you not honoring the Sabbath? And so in response, Jesus asks them if they had ever read about this event in David's life. And, well, of course they had. They were scribes and Pharisees. Yes, they were familiar with this account. So why does Jesus bring it up? To highlight the fact that David received the bread and he wasn't condemned for it. See, the author's point, when we can step back and not miss the forest for the trees, actually is pretty simple. The author's point in this is that the Lord provides for David. David is desperate. David is vulnerable. But the Lord hasn't abandoned him. He's still providing him with daily bread. But we know, and it's all in the text, that bread wasn't the only thing that David needed. He also asks Ahimelech if they have any weapons lying around. And he tells him, you know, the king's errand, it required haste, so I had to leave quickly. That's, that's why I, I don't have any weapons. And when you think about it, that's, that's kind of ironic, because the king's business did in fact require haste on David's part, because the king's business was killing David. And that is why David did not have any weapons, because he had to get out of Dodge rather quick. That's why he's in the predicament that he's in. No food, no weapons. But wouldn't you know it? The priests, they did have a sword lying around. And now if I dare venture ahead a week, I think they're going to regret that uh, when we see the next text. But they do have a sword lying around. It's a sword of Goliath, and nothing compared to that sword. And so Ahimelech offers it to David if David will have it, and David is more than happy to take it. So David, the desperate, vulnerable running for his life, king-to-be, has food, and he has a sword. The Lord is providing for David. Be encouraged by this. In our own desperate moments, whether it's sickness, whether it's family strife, whatever it may be, I'm sure any one of us will, and I'm sure many of us have wondered, 
Has the Lord forgotten me? Has he abandoned me? Has he left me? But do you have food on your table? Do you have clothes on your back? Do you have a roof over your head? Are your most basic needs being met? Jesus assures his disciples that the Lord, who cares for the birds of the air, he feeds them, who clothes the grass of the fields, knows what you need and is faithful to provide. If you have these things, it is because the Lord has been gracious to provide them for you. It's evidence that he hasn't forgotten about you. So even in the midst of your desperation, give him thanks. So David has bread. David has a sword. But he obviously still feels the crushing weight of desperation. And he continues to run. And that leads to the second scene, the scene in Gath where the Lord delivers David. Now, I'm sure we understand that desperation can make bad ideas seem like real winners. I'm sure you've been there in a desperate moment. You did something that in hindsight you were like, that was not good. I think that's clearly what happens when David runs to the Philistines. Gath, let's think about it. Reason with me. Gath was Goliath's hometown. We don't know how much time has elapsed between David killing Goliath and now, but I'm going to venture that it's not enough for the people of Gath to have forgotten what David did. That's not something that people tend to forget. When you, you conquer their champion, they don't forget it. Alabama fans, have you forgotten Cam Newton? No. You haven't. Yet... Here's David. He comes trotting along, and not only is he coming into Gath, the place of Goliath, who he had killed, but he's bringing with him their fallen champion's sword, the thing he used to cut off his head. This doesn't seem like it's a plan that's going to endear him to the fine folks down in Gath. And, lo and behold, he's not exactly welcomed with open arms. They were open, sure, but only long enough to seize him. So the Philistines take him captive, which is evident in how the text kind of explains the situation to us. It says in verse 13 that when he begins to act insane, he does so in their hands. And in that moment, Achish asks his servants, Why have you brought him to me? And if that's not enough evidence for you, the heading of Psalm 56, which we'll come to in just a moment, which David wrote while he was uh, in the situation, it reads, when he was seized uh, in Gath. So, clearly, David is their captive. And why they captured, captured him is, is also plain enough for us. Verse 11 tells us, they recognized him. They ask, is this not David, king of the land? And I'll be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure in what sense they mean this. They, I don't think, would have known about his uh, anointing by Samuel. But the song that the ladies of, of Israel, that they had sang about him, that had obviously reached their ears. And so maybe they're viewing him as a king over a specific region or a city in a similar way as, as Achish was king of, of his city. However they meant it, they know that he's an important figure and that he had struck down many of their warriors. 
And so it's one of those out of the frying pan and into the fire sort of situations that David has found himself in. And he recognizes this. The text tells us as much uh, because it says that David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And so you might say that David is having a terrible, no good, horrible, rotten, very, very bad day or string of days. And so in an attempt to save his skin, David fakes insanity. Claws at the gate. He lets spit run down his beard. And if you want to talk about insane, let's be honest, this plan that David has concocted, it is insane. But he's desperate. In desperate times, call for desperate measures. We have to understand, there is no logical reason why this plan should work. This plan should fail. Even with him pretending to be insane, even if they believed him, which we know that they did, it, it didn't make sense for them to release him. He killed Goliath. He'd killed many, many Philistines. And so even if they're looking at him and going, this guy is a nut job, there's got ample reason to hold him. Why would they let him go? But that's what they do. Achish, looking at David, turns to his servants and just lays into them. Why would you bring me this crazy man? I've got plenty of those. I don't need another one. And so they let him go. What are we to make of this? What do we do with that? Well, thankfully, David wrote two different psalms about this event. And so the scriptures tell us exactly what to think about all that is going on here. I mentioned Psalm 56 a minute ago, which David wrote about being seized by the Philistines in Gath. And so there, in verses 1 through 4, he says this, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This moment displays how the grace of the Lord aids his saints in desperate times. It's because moments like this can be incredibly sobering. They often bring about clarity that times of ease don't. They serve to remind us of our need for the Lord. They open our eyes all the more to our need to trust in Him. And so in that sense, those situations in and of themselves are a grace of the Lord. Understand that. It's not just the deliverance that comes from them. Should the Lord give that, that is the grace. It's simply being in that, and the Lord sustaining and keeping us through that, and the maturing of our faith that He does through that. That is a grace of God to His people. It's not me suggesting that we pray for trial, that we pray for tribulation. No, it's not that at all. But simply that we need to have our mind adjusted to realize the times of Desperation are in and of themselves a grace from God who works all things for good 
for those who are called according to his purpose, by which he burns away the dross of sin and conforms us into the likeness of the Son. But the psalm continues. Verses 8 through 13, David also says this. He says, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. So we may come to 1 Samuel 21 and and read about him before Achish, and what he does to get away. And we may, be, we may be tempted to accuse David of acting in a way that is self-reliant, but the Scriptures won't let us get away with that. Rather, what we see is that in his fear, his fear turns him to trust the Lord. And so this paints his actions before Achish in an entirely different light. It seems more of, he's saying, I don't know if this is going to work, but if it does, it will be because the Lord made it work, because the Lord is the one delivering me. That's what the Lord did, and that's the point. Again, really, when you dig into this passage, the point is, is pretty straightforward. The Lord provided for David, and now the Lord has delivered David, which prompts him to write Psalm 34. Following his insane escape here from Achish, he writes, Psalm 34, verses 1 through 9, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The Lord delivers David, and his response is praise, which is the only right response to the Lord's deliverance. And this is instructive for us. Did you wake up a Christian today? Then God, through Christ, has delivered you from your enemies, from sin and from death. But not only that, dead in our sin, we were enemies of God. And so through the death of his son, what God has done is delivered us from his own wrath. He satisfied that in Christ who drank the cup of the fury of his wrath in the place of his people. And he has taken those who find shelter in Christ, those who recognize their sin, guilt, and turn to Christ for salvation. He has taken you, his enemy, and made you his child, having adopted you into his family. Do you feel like you have nothing to praise him for? Repent of that. 
If you woke up trusting Christ for salvation, then magnify the Lord, exalt his name. Free from the clutches of the Philistines, David goes back out on the run. But it it seems like his near miss there in Gath was clarifying for him even as he continues his wanderings. And so that leads to the last scene, which spans the cave of Adullam to Moab and back into Judah, where we see that the Lord leads David. So next... As I said, David comes to the cave of Adullam, which if you're keeping score, he's gone Gebeah to Nob in Israel, Gath, just outside of Israel, back in, just inside the borders to this cave. And his family, on learning what it is, uh, where it is that he, on learning where he is, they join him. And that makes a lot of sense, because if David is on the run from the king, then their lives may be in danger as well. So they gather to him in the, in the cave, but they aren't the only ones who come. We read in verse 2 that those in distress gather to David, those in debt gather to David, and the discontent gather to David. So what you have is vulnerable, weak, desperate David is now surrounded by a bunch of vulnerable, weak, desperate people which is very different from what we've seen with Saul. If we were to flip back to Saul chapter 14, Saul chapter 14, 1 Samuel chapter 14, and look at verse 52, there we would read that when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. See, Saul is on the lookout. He's taking all the strong and all the brave, and he's attaching them to himself. David isn't trying to bring anyone near to himself. People are gathered to him, and they aren't the strong and the valiant. They're the weak and the downtrodden. Nothing about this inspires much confidence that David is ever going to be king. Saul seems to have all the power. For one, he's the king. He's literally the most powerful man in Israel. And by virtue of his position, he's got access to and has uh, all of Israel's best and brightest near him. We saw that his servants, they're everywhere. Meanwhile, David is on the run and he's surrounded by dead weight. Saul is strong. David is weak. But we know that there's more to the situation than meets the eye. David recognizes his parents aren't cut out for life on the run. So he and his merry band of misfits, they go off to Moab where he leaves his parents in the care of the king of Moab. But notice what he says when he does this. says to the king, Let them stay till I know what God will do for me. His earlier flight was frantic, desperate. Now he's content to wait and see what the Lord will do. And the prophet Gad brings the Lord's response. Go back to Judah. And so off he goes. And don't miss the significance of this. God is with David, leading him. We know that Saul can't say the same. In just a few chapters, Saul's going to find himself in a pretty desperate spot too. The Philistines are going to gather against Israel again, and he's going to see their army, and he's going to tremble. He'll seek the Lord 
in multiple different ways and be met with radio silence. The Lord's not going to answer him. So desperate, he goes to a medium and says, raise up Samuel for me so that I can ask him for guidance. All because the Lord is not with him. He's with David, leading his king. And what this all does is it points us to the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. David is vulnerable and desperate. The kingdom under him looks like nothing more than a pipe dream. But this is the way that the Lord works in the world. He exalts himself through the weak, not the strong. And that's a thread that is running and working its way throughout the book. Remember all the way back in chapter 2 to Hannah's prayer. She says this, this is verses 3 and 4 and then also verse 9. It says, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. <coughs> but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. David will not prevail because of his might. He will only prevail because it is the Lord who is upholding him. And in this, all of David's very real weakness and vulnerability serves to bring glory to God. That's what the text is pointing us to. The Lord doesn't take things that seem strong in the eyes of the world and establish his kingdom through them. No, he takes that which appears weak, that he may be shown to be mighty. He works for his glory through the weak things of the world. And in this, he is shown to be big, and his name is exalted. It's in the Lord's care for David were pointed forward to his greater descendant, Christ our Lord. We have David, who's running from place to place. Jesus said, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. David was fleeing desperately because of Saul's hatred. Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. David runs into the hands of his enemies, but is delivered. Jesus gives himself into the hands of his enemies and is killed. And yet through death, he's conquered sin and death for his people. In him, we have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins, and peace with God. The Lord would eventually establish David as king, but he died. And his reign was passed on to his son. Jesus died and was raised. He sits on the throne now, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. His kingdom is forever. His kingdom is a place of shelter. Those in debt, those in distress, and the discontent gathered to David. Jesus calls to himself, all who labor and are heavy laden, and those who come to him in faith, receive rest for your souls. Christ doesn't attach himself to the strong and the valiant. He has delivered 
through his own blood the meek and the poor in spirit. All who see their desperate spiritual state and flee to Christ find rest under his rule. He provides for his people. He delivers his people. And he leads his people. But there's also a warning here for you if your confidence is in your own strength. If you believe, I don't know that I need God to be good. I don't need the merit of another. I'm more than capable through my own righteous deeds, my own good deeds and good works, to do enough that God will be pleased with me. He'll be content with me. But the warning, friend, is that you will not stand before the Lord on the basis of your own merits. It is not those who exalt themselves who find favor with God, but it is those who understand themselves to be weak, in desperate need of the grace of God available in Christ and Him only. He offers grace to all who recognize their need for the forgiveness of sins and who turn to Him, coming desiring to be under his rule. And in this, the Lord is glorified. He is shown to be big when his people recognize their desperation and turn to him. When they gladly sing, we are weak, but he is strong. And yet too often, our churches find far more comfort in full pews and full bank accounts. We put confidence And these things that give the appearance of strength, booming youth ministries and popular children's programs, we assume that churches are strong and healthy because they have these things. And it's not to say that those things aren't to be desired. We meet here on Tuesday mornings to pray each week. If you have not joined us, I hope that you will begin to do so. And regularly, we pray for the Lord to provide for us financially. It's wise to do, faithful to do. We pray for the Lord to give us new members. And if the Lord gives us those things, then great. Praise the Lord for it. But if he doesn't, great. Praise the Lord for what he's seen fit to do. What we must desire most of all is that the Lord would be honored in all that we do. This happens when we recognize that we are, that we are weak and he is strong. But that's not our first inclination. I want you to think about it this way. I want you to think about two churches. One is a happening place. Hundreds of people across multiple services every week. They run a multi-million dollar budget, and it shows up in all their programs. Everything is clean. It's crisp. It goes off without a hitch. They have the best everything. Music is spotless. Sermons are short. Get to real life situations. How to be better husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and employees. You know, practical, five steps to be more generous. And so when people leave, they feel like, well, I really got something out of that today. I have this, 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 and do. I'm going to do on Monday. Tons of children for your friends, your, your kids to be friends with. There's nothing really required of the people there. I come and I go without people asking me hard questions about my life. How are you loving your kids? How are you doing putting away this sin or that? Hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Where have you been? No, there's, there's none of that. Now, Consider another congregation, smaller, maybe its membership is getting older. The budget pays the bills, allows for a few things here and there, but nothing extravagant. The services, various kinds of prayer throughout. Congregation is regularly called to repentance of sin, 
and to continue resting in Christ for salvation. Rich doctrine is emphasized in the music and in all the programs. The members are involved in one another's lives. They ask the hard questions. They pray for one another. They correct. They rebuke. They encourage one another on to holy living. And now if I ask you, which of the two is stronger, I know what you're going to say. Well, it's the second one. We know you. We're not falling for your tricks. But I'm not trying to trick anyone. Because I don't have to. Fickle hearts do that well enough on their own. They give away what we actually believe over and over again. See, the inclination of our flesh is to see full pews and big budgets as signs of strength. And so we don't actually look past those things. If those things are present, then, okay, lo and behold, this must be a strong church. And now you may say to me, but I know that's not true. I know that there's more to it than that. But that's where our hearts give us away. We panic when people leave and giving decreases. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's simply that we turn a jealous eye towards the church around the corner. They seem to have it going better than we do. And so we panic. We pray less, pray less as we turn to our own devices to fix things. We need better programs that attract more people. We need to fix the music. Sermons should be shorter and more applicable. And understand, it's not just people in the pew who are tempted in these ways. Pastors do it too. There's the temptation. Well, heaven forbid, don't confront sin. It'll make people angry and they'll leave. Well, we need to be doing this or that. That's going to draw in more people. Jealousy with our pa- over, over the larger ministries of our pastor friends. That creeps in. And just continuing to, continuing to faithfully preach and teach the Word starts to look foolish. Prayer and preaching look weak and ineffective. What this results in are cooled affections for God. We stop seeing ourselves as reliant on Him. We stop looking to, to Him for help and aid. Instead, we put our confidence in the strength of our own hands. If we just do this or that, then things will get better. And our love for Him wanes as our confidence in the flesh grows. It tests the metal of an entire congregation when people and dollars decrease. That's when we find out what we actually think about strength and weakness. But if we're going to make much of God, we must not measure strength simply by what the eyes can see. Strong congregations recognize that they are weak and are glad for it. This isn't a big church, little church thing. A big church can be strong and healthy, a tiny church weak and sin-sick. Whether they're made up of a thousand or ten, they understand that apart from the grace of God, they'll go under. And in the upside-down nature of God's kingdom, this increases joy in the Lord. That's because a strong church is driven closer to the Lord by their weakness. Their they learn to enjoy Him more. A strong church is one that recognizes its desperate need to be delivered from sin, who are looking to Christ for that deliverance, that recognize that, yes, we all have a sin sickness, and the only place to turn for that is Christ, and to trust Him for deliverance. 
And so a strong church is filled with people who are meek and poor in spirit, who want to be reminded of how the Lord has delivered them through Christ, who are confessing their sins to one another, who are correcting one another with gentleness, who are bearing with one another with all patience, who are diligent to see any sin in their midst addressed, not ignored because it may be uncomfortable or inconvenient, but lovingly and graciously confronted because they long to be a faithful witness to Christ who delivers his people from their sin. A strong church is one that is desperate for the Lord to provide for them. So they give themselves to prayer. This is a congregation who is regularly asking the Lord to meet their every need, from daily bread to help crushing sin, who do not look to corporate prayer as simply a transition point in the service. Rather, corporate prayer is an essential part of the weekly gathering, giving ample time to, ver- to a variety of different kinds of prayer, prayers of adoration and prayers confessing sin, prayers of thanksgiving and asking God for help and provision. A strong church is one that is desperate for the Lord to lead them. And so they gather weekly for the regular preaching of God's word, where the people insist that the scriptures be rightly preached, where the sermons emphasize the point of the text, emphasizing the text itself, where the gospel is made clear week in and week out, where the life of the church is ordered according to the scriptures, from what happens in the services to how the ministries of the church are run to even what ministries the church is involved in. A strong church is one where the word bounces all around the congregation, where the members bring one another to the scriptures for encouragement, for correction, and to be urged on to faithfulness uh, to Christ. Church's strength is not measured by its stats, the size of its budget or number of people. A church's strength is measured by its trust in the Lord. It's measured by its desires to be led by him. It's measured by its recognition of its need, of the deliverance available in Christ and in Christ alone. That's a church that exalts God. That's the church we want to be. And may the Lord be gracious to work that in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and for your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you that you care for us, weak, foolish people who turn from you the drop of a hat. And yet you are kind. Call us back. You strengthen us by your spirit to walk in righteousness, and that's what we ask you to do in us today. Help us to exalt you by recognizing our need for you, that we would come to Christ confessing sin, seeking to urge one another on to faithfulness, and being urged on by one another, that in all things you would be honored and glorified in us. Amen.